we'll take a glass together and we will lift it to the good life and as we're lifting it we will most sincerely say prosit your health sir salute and skol nostrovia have a santé for one brief moment in this cold and careless day we'll take a glass together Hello and welcome to Broadway Radios. This week on Broadway for Sunday, March 25th, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at Masterworks Broadway, MTI Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Hi. Good morning. Hello. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He is also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at fellowsbutphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. With us this morning, we have a very special guest. Major Attaway is joining us uh, by telephone. Broadway fans know Major Attaway from Aladdin, where he is the genie. And uh, he has a concert coming up at Green Room 42 tonight and tomorrow, uh, March 25th and 26th at the Green Room 42. And Major, thank you for getting up on a uh, Sunday morning, the Neverland of uh, Broadway performers. Uh, you, you have uh, a full eight shows this week and you're doing, uh, you're doing uh, more shows at the Green Room 42 on your time off. So thank you so much. You are so welcome. Thank you. Good morning, and I'm happy to be here. So tell us about your shows at the Green Room 42. What are you guys going to be doing? Of course. uh, Myself and my two genie standby friends, uh, Deontay uh, Lamont and Jawan Allen Crawley, have put together a cabaret um, of sorts. What's unique about the three of us is that we have the full choir between us, even though we all play the same role. I be, I'm the bass, uh, Deontay's in the middle, and then Juwan is on the top. And we uh, have really just clicked, and we've decided to put something together that showcases all of our talents. <laughs> That's awesome. You know, yeah. you, don't, you don't have the understudies and standbys that want to kill you? Uh, you know, yeah, and that's also part of it. What we realized, <laughs> we realized how special this moment was for us to get along so well and um, to be so individual yet um, work well together. And they're great people to, to to be my backups as well. And because the genie is so, you know, he's so unique that we're completely individual, and it's it's something we couldn't look past. And so now we're going to try and, you know, exploit it in the most fun possible way. <laughs> what type of music do we think that we'll be, uh, you'll be putting on? Oh, well, we're going to do a little R&B. We're going to do, you know, a little homage to Disney. Um, we are also going to do some, some jazz and some gospel, uh, everything that's from our roots. And we're going to, and the uniqueness is when we sing together. That's the best part. And that is, what we have focused on. And I think it's going to be a beautiful, beautiful evening. The, uh, your big number in Aladdin friend like me is such a, a, a huge physical number. And the green room, uh, 42 is a, is a beautiful space and, and, and fairly spacious, but not as, 
spacious as the new Amsterdam theater. Uh, without giving anything away, uh, I was wondering if you'll be doing a version of the number and uh, and how you might have adapted it to the space. Well, I will say that we we pay respect to our boss, to the mouse. We definitely <laughs> show him some serious love. But I don't. Yeah, you're right. I don't want to give it away. I think you should come and see what we what we decide to do. But Fair enough. The the one thing about the genie is that he doesn't get to sing any ballads, and so that is something that we have decided to take a minute and let you hear for sure. Good point. Uh huh. Um, now, were you with Aladdin from day one um, as uh, Mr. Engelshart's understudy? Uh, no, sir. I was actually the the third standby to join okay. the cast. Right. Um, the first, yeah, the first was Michael James Scott. He is currently uh, leading the the U.S. tour, and then the second was Trevor Dion Nicholas, who is um, the genie in London. And then I joined on the two-year anniversary opening day, March um, 20th, 2016. And so I was his backup for about a year until he left us for Hamilton. And then they offered me the opportunity to step up, and I've been riding the wave ever since. (laughs) It's quite a, a wave to ride. Where are you from originally? Born and raised in Fort Worth, Texas, Dallas, Fort Worth. Okay, so how does a boy from Fort Worth get interested in Broadway musicals? Oh, that is a good question. Well, always been, you know, in, into music growing up, um, into storytelling, big on my imagination, uh, daydreamer, just, you know, all the um, cliche things, if you will. But I started singing gospel music in the church and realized I enjoyed storytelling on top of that. Um, I ended up at Cosman on the Theater when I was very young, which is where they... Sure, um, I know it well. Yeah, they helped me. Yeah, the House of Tomorrow, the kids are great there. I was a, I was a Casa kid. I toured with them for a little while, and that is how I got to see my first Broadway show. I saw The Lion King in the same building I'm working in now. Isn't that and something? The, right? Oh, it's a full circle moment, and it, it gives me chills every time I get to repeat it again. And I can still show you the seat that I sat in. So... Um, once I found the theater, that's, I mean, once I found it at um, the age of nine or 10 and got into it, I loved it. But seeing the Broadway show was, you know, what, was what cemented it for sure. How wonderful. What a great story. And then you uh, made a uh, transition here to New York. What had, uh, how did you end up, um, you know, getting involved with the Disney people and what other types of uh, things have you done here in town? Well, uh, this is actually my first um, job here in the city. I was living <laughs> awesome. and working. <laughs> I was I was living and working in Texas, um, acting locally, singing for the symphony, narrating for the symphony. You know, um, commercials, anime, video games, all of it, and networking is key is what I, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> I did a show in Dallas. I did hands on a hard body at, um, oh. theater. Well, wait, wait. What, was the one that was closed down? Um, no, no, that was, okay, um, all right. That was a theater. <laughs> all right. <laughs> that was uh, in, uh, it was in Texas, but uh, I believe that was uh, in Houston. Okay. <laughs> now we, uh, ours was in Dallas. And mm-hmm. so the, the, the writer came to see the show. Um, 
and he is actually the person who has a connection to Disney, uh, Doug Wright. Um, he wrote the book for The Little Mermaid on Broadway. Mm-hmm. And he came to see our production because he's from Texas. And this was a theater that he worked at when he was a, when he was a young man. And he passed my name through the grapevine. And I later, once once I was able to audition and send a tape in, <clears throat> that connection was made. And so that's what led me um, to to get the part. Uh, two related questions. Your your given name is so wonderful. I, I was wondering if you could give us the background on that. And also, I, I suppose Attaway is not a, a, a terribly uncommon name. But I was wondering if by any chance you know if you were related to the wonderful actress Ruth Attaway, who appeared in films such as Rain Tree County and Porgy and Bess and Being There. You know, it's funny that I don't know. But how about this? Today <laughs> is my birthday. Hey. Oh my goodness! Right, uh, thank you. And I, what I, but I, I say that because I was just gifted this morning by my standby brothers, Juwan and uh, Deontay, who I love so much. Um, Ancestry.com. <laughs> so I will be, I will be looking into that because it's something I've always wanted to do, and I'm they're finally uh, forcing me to sit down and do it. And so that I'm going to be finding out that question. But I do know, uh, major. Um, the first person in my family tree, his name was Reverend Major Howell. He was born in 1887. And the name has been passed down through my family. Now, I don't know how official it is, but um, I would say when I, if I have a kid that I will probably add to it. I don't think – I haven't heard a story from my family saying, yes, this is why we do it, but it has continued to happen. There was even a, uh, a Ruth Major in my family Mm. so it could be well okay well i mean you can obviously look her up she was she was from greenville mississippi and uh i'll you know i'll I'll let you do do the rest of the research but wouldn't that be wonderful it would be that would be fantastic (laughs) this is uh a uh an incredible uh opportunity for you to be able to uh be on a broadway stage and and work at the highest levels of live theater in the world uh what was it like to call home and tell your friends and family i just got cast in a broadway show (laughs) well it was hard for me to believe at first to be honest (laughs) and honestly i still have to pinch myself i still finish friend like me and i say that was me, right? I did that. I got to do that. Okay, great, great. <laughs> but, um, well, I can tell you that the reaction was my, my parents threw a party. Ah, <laughs> nice, they, nice. Um, because, you know, everyone that I've worked with in Texas, uh, I think we all had the same mindset. We, we just wanted to be working actor. That was, that would be, you know, the biggest blessing any of us could ask for. And, you're right. The the biggest stages on the stages on the world. It's um, it's humbling. It really is. But and um, so I'm sorry. The the reaction the reaction was insane. To be honest, <clears throat> I everybody I have ever worked with came out and gave me love and told me how proud they were and just wanted to push me to um, stay the same guy but continue to do more work. Mm. That's uh, that's just incredible. We we often ask folks uh, 
you know, uh, that transition from the nine-year-old boy at Casa Manana uh, Theater. Uh, at, at that point, did you envision this, and and were were your friends and families accepting of of an arts career? I would say at nine, yes. Um, <laughs> you know, yes, because right. I, sure. <laughs> I, I'm an only child, and my they knew that I was a daydreamer, and so. But when I can envision it, I could. Um, it probably, you know, faded and then came back um, as I learned more about it and got older, and you know, hit, hit puberty and thought differently about myself, and my voice changed, and all these things, but. Um, as accepting for it, I would say yes. It's always I've been the only person in my family to do something uh, like this. So I think that everyone who came out and supported, who were who was close family, they were always pleasantly surprised. They were like, um, just, they really just came in and enjoyed what I did, and so they were just happy to be supportive. I think, and I don't. I think this came as a surprise to a lot of people, especially I mean me as included, but. Um, it was always about how much I just wanted to, to do whatever show was happening, to do something, to have something to do. And so it didn't, this is just a, a wonderful enhancement of that, to be honest. Like they, now they get to enjoy the show, you know, with 1700 other people and they've always felt that I was as good then as I am now. Of course, I would beg to differ, but <laughs> I am very grateful for it. <laughs> Um, uh, and last question for the morning, uh, how long does it take you to prepare for the genie role? Do you get to the theater an hour, two hours before? I mean, uh, are, are you, uh, taking care of yourself? It's, it, you, you put out a lot of energy there. Yes. Um, usually arrive 90 minutes prior to curtain. And I do my first round of makeup and then I sit in the makeup chair at about 15 minutes before the show. And yes, um, outside of the show, uh, I have learned to live like an athlete. When I was younger, I used to play football and had to be, I had to make a decision at whether I wanted to continue playing football or doing theater because I would show up at choir rehearsal for the Texas boys choir in mm -hmm. my football pants and my mother would say, you need to make a decision. So I'm still getting to do that because eight shows a week leaves um, little time for um, recuperation. Mm -hmm. So you have to, you have to every day make sure that you're on top of that. So, you know, I'm working with a personal trainer, um, taking voice lessons, all of these things to keep the, uh, keep the motor running. There's been a number of uh, leading men on Broadway who have uh, played college ball, college football, and uh, some basketball, some baseball, and they've all come to those crossroads as well. I mean, uh, Rob Evan opening up over in uh, Rocktopia next week, uh, played college yeah. ball at University of Georgia uh, football, and uh, a few other folks as well. So I can appreciate what you're saying there. Well. Major mm -hmm. Attaway is starring in uh, the Genie's Jukebox at the Green Room 42 coming up uh, this evening, Sunday, March 25th, and Monday, March 26th. So uh, check them out there. You can see Major Attaway on um, all the major social media at Major Attaway. We'll have links to that in the show notes. Major, thank you so much for getting up on a Sunday morning and talking with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I appreciate you.
We'll take a glass together. Baby, my baby loves me, but oh, it's so. Why's my baby leave me crying alone in my cot? Baby, my loving baby loves me Okay, let's head off into our review section. Peter and Michael, you both got a chance to get over to City Center's Encores to see uh, this week's production of Grand Hood's Hell. Are we taking a glass together? Peter, let me know. What were your thoughts? Well, Grand Hotel and I go back a long way, and uh, I think it's one of the best experiences I've had in the last 30 years. And it's almost been 30 years since Tommy Toon invited me to the workshop at the Hotel Diplomat, which doesn't exist anymore, uh, and sat me third row center to see the first act of the show. Uh, Third row center sounds impressive, but there were only three rows in the room. So um, go over there, Peter, sit there. Um, Mike Nichols and Diane Sawyer were sitting in the first row, I remember. So anyway, Farley Granger was doing it then. Uh, when he was playing the doctor, the doctor who has been battle-scarred in war and really claims that he doesn't want to live, I can't wait to die, is one of his lines. And yet, he keeps going, doesn't he? Because no matter how uh, sour we are on life, we do get scared of death, don't we? So he is too. To me, this is a major musical. I saw it in um, Boston, the second preview. <clears throat> now, this is before Mari Eston came in with songs, and I thought it was superb then. But b- there was an arc to it that flowed so beautifully at that point that I really thought it was spectacular. However, when Mari Eston came in and wrote one of the greatest um, title songs on the road since Oklahoma, <laughs> um, I, I was very impressed with what he did too. And I do believe that um, he certainly contributed major, major things to the show. While Flemshin, the girl who wants to go to Hollywood, had a very enticing and melodic song that was really a toe tapper. Maury replaced it with really a musical scene song. It, it, it was more than a song. It was actually a musical scene <clears throat> in which she said such poignant things as, I want to wear nice shoes. And when things get broken, they stay broken. And many of us have been in that position when we don't have money. And um, if something breaks, yeah, we have to live with the fact that we're not using that anymore. So... <laughs> A lot of amazing things happened out of town with it, including a power ballad, uh, uh, Love Can't Happen, uh, for for David James Carroll. And uh, the work that he did was really sensational. So I think Grand Hotel, when it finally arrived on Broadway, was terrific beyond belief. And it was a show I saw a number of times and loved dearly, dearly, dearly. So I certainly was looking forward to this uh, production. And it is a production. It was a production. Um, nary a book was seen. Uh, as we know, as Encores has gone on, um, it has become far, far less reliant on books and far more uh, on production values. And this was a show that really um, challenged everybody because, of course, there's so much choreography in it. And um, much of it was in the style of Tommy Toon, but uh, for its own sake, it was really a very impressive. And um, the, the reason I love the show, and perhaps even more now than then, is because I am 28 years older. And this whole story is about time running out. And mm-hmm. time is running out on people in a number of ways. It's running out in Grushkinskaya, the ballerina, who uh, used to sell out. Now she doesn't sell out anymore. And 
she's so devastated because she doesn't get an encore at her recent performance. Why? Because time is running out on her. Because indeed, she's getting old. And as we learned from Chorus Line, you know, dances um, don't last forever. More to the point, there was a wonderful device that I, I think is so clever in this um, musical because what we see her at one point doing is not dancing tremendously as you would expect. Um, what you see her doing is toe and foot exercises, and it really reiterates the fact that so much of being a dancer means these exercises you have to do, that it's not always in front of crowds getting the huzzas, that uh, a lot of work has to go into it. So time is running out on her. Time is certainly running out on Kringle Line. He was a a bookkeeper. In fact, he was a bookkeeper for General Director Pricing, and we'll talk about him in a second. And um, now he finds out he is dying, and it won't be long before he dies. And as a result, he is going to spend whatever money he has by going to the Grand Hotel. Now, the thing is, because he's a Jew, uh, they're not going to let him in. And this is where the Baron comes in. Now, the Baron is noble, right? Uh, that's what they are. They're nobles. Well, the thing is, this baron isn't particularly noble because he's broke. Um, we always assume that nobles are rich. Well, not always. And this is one who isn't. He's in six months in arrears, and they want to get him out of there. And he has taken to stealing in other rooms. But because he's a noble, he is able to wangle Kringlein getting into the hotel. That's a nice thing to do. Mm. Later... Later, he will be noble again and risk his own life to save Flemshen from being sexually harassed. And by the way, sexually harassed is putting it uh, lightly. So he does the right things. So he is noble, which is very interesting as well. So um, so those characters are, are certainly uh, pretty fascinating. And then there's Prising, as I mentioned, who's the general director. And time is running out for him, too, because if he doesn't make a merger um, with a Boston company, his company, the board of directors, is going to get rid of him. And he thinks this is the worst thing that can happen to him in the entire world. You know something? It's not, as we will see huh. as the show continues. Something far worse happens to him, proving that, you know, whenever you think that the worst thing has happened to you, <laughs> as Comden agree, wrote and fade out, fade in, there's always one step further down you can go. <laughs> so these are these are tremendously interesting characters. And so is Rafaela, who is indeed um, Grushkinskaya's attendant and wants to be her lover and has been biding her time knowing that her career would eventually have to come to an end and then she would be needed because what skills does an aging ballerina have? Um, but she's been saving her pennies and she wants uh, this woman's body and love and soul. And um, we have a feeling that she's going to get it. So these are interesting people. And so is uh, the score just wonderful, I think. Um, they really kept the best of the the right and forest. I don't want to uh, give them short shrift because they wrote a wonderful bebop number for um, two uh, uh, attendants um, called uh, Maybe My Baby Loves Me. The score is so varied. There's a Charleston um, in um, 
and uh, in a song called Happy. And <clears throat> there's a foxtrot in Who Couldn't Dance With You, and there's a phenomenal bolero, uh, which uh, was beautifully done in the original and very nicely done here. Very nicely done here. So a lot of good material here, and I think it's really such a rich show, and I haven't even gotten to the second greatest production number I have ever seen in my life, which is We'll Take a Glass Together, which ironically enough is uh, a tribute to money. Uh, we all need it. You know, I mean, <laughs> we hear that in Dolly, a reference to money. Uh, and um, it, once um, Kringlein makes more money than he expected to because he takes a stock market tip from the Baron, um, they celebrate. We'll take a glass together. And it's a phenomenal production number involving um, a, a bar. I don't mean a bar where you drink. I mean a literal, you know, horizontal bar. And um, Michael Jeter was, of course, phenomenal in doing that. And um, Brandon Uranowitz certainly did well by it as well. So a very nice performance by him, who's becoming one of my, our most valuable performers. So um, we have all that. And I mean, I could talk about this show endlessly, as I think you can tell. Um, um, but one thing occurred to me that had never occurred to me before, and that is the fact that with all the talk about the Boston merger and whether or not the Boston merger was going to be successful, the Boston merger between Wright and Forrest and Mari Eston turned <laughs> out to be successful. <laughs> you know, the, the, they were in Boston. You know, I, mean, uh, I will say that, um, as they say in football, I get the impression these two teams didn't like each other. Uh, I think Wright and Forrest really were very, very um, upset that uh, – they were um, essentially replaced because I went to the recording session of the show, which took forever to happen. And a lot of it, I think, had to do with the uh, legal machinations of what was going on. But um, Mari sat at his table, right and far sat at their table. And um, even though the tables were together, never the twain did meet in any type of conversation during the time that I was there. Let me also point out that the theme of time is running out also happened with David James Carroll. Because indeed, um, he was supposed to do the recording and he was very sick from AIDS at that point. And they said, we better have him come in early and do his tracks and then we'll have the cast come in when we get the chance to get them in. He actually died in the men's room uh, at the recording studio. So, uh, so Grand Hotel tells the truth. It is indeed a show that um, indicates time runs out on all of us, and indeed it does. So so this was a very nice presentation. Um, I'll let Michael do the names. He's so good at that. But I, huh. I, thought, it was, uh, <laughs> I thought it was a very, very fine um, uh, uh, vote of confidence for the show. And uh, it was just so moving to see it again and to see the audience respond to it. It's one of our most intelligent musicals. And um, and that's why it's probably at Encores, because it might have a tough time uh, getting done here, there, and everywhere. So, uh, But I wish it would get done more often, but it is a tough show to do. So, Michael? Yeah, you know, because the Encore shows have such brief rehearsal periods, uh, no previews, and only a week's worth of performances, uh, I would say there's very little time for buzz to build on any show, either positive or negative. So I, uh, you know, I really hadn't heard <laughs> much about this one, and, and uh, I didn't really expect anything either way. And then suddenly, I just right before it, it began performances, I started to hear really, really good things. And they turned out to be absolutely true. I think that, um, that this was... A, a really a feather in the cap of Josh Rhodes, who directed and choreographed it. And um, his past Broadway credits 
uh, more choreography only for Rodgers and Hammerstein Cinderella. It should have been you, First Date, and Bright Star. And all of that was great work, but I don't think anything prepared any of us for what a superb job he did with this show. Um, and uh, it, which also features typically excellent and, and meticulous musical direction and conducting by Rob Berman. But um, this, you know, uh, Tommy Toon is, is often considered the hero of the original Grand Hotel and with good reason. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, the, that the torch has been passed. I think that there, there were nods, a certain nods to, uh, to Tommy Toon's work in this production. And yet Josh Rhodes really uh, made it his own in, in, a, in a wonderful, wonderful way. I, uh, I am thinking of trying to buy a ticket for the final performance uh. this evening because it's, it is not, as Peter mentioned, it's not the kind of show that's done that often and needs to be done really, really really well for it to make its effect. Um, and it, it certainly is in this case. I thought, I mean, to be completely honest, I thought that some of the acting performances might have been deeper. Some of the characterizations might have been deeper with a little more rehearsal. Um, it's it's tough because uh, it, it, there is no central character. There's lots of central characters in the show. And uh, because of that, uh, it, it, it has an episodic, a kind of snapshot kind of feeling to it. Um, and I, I think that maybe makes it a little more difficult to, uh, to arrive at deep characterizations, um, in, especially in a short period. But anyway, it, it, everyone involved should be so proud. We have as the Baron James Snyder, as Kringleine Brandon Uranowitz, uh, as Elisabetta Grushinskaya, Irina Dvorovenko, uh, who was also in On Your Toes for Encores and did such a wonderful job at that, a, a, a ballet, a, a bona fide ballet star who is making her way into musical theater. Uh, Rafaela is Natasha Diaz. Flemchen is Helene York. Prizing is John Dossett. And, um, uh, oh, by the way, the, uh, the dancing couple who brought the house down mm -hmm. are Guadalupe Garcia and Junior Servila. And also a wonderful thing about this production uh, uh, that also ties into the themes that, that Peter was mentioning is that Colonel Dr. Otternschlag, who's basically the narrator of the piece, is played by William Ryle, who in the original production was one of the scullery workers. So that, that's a, a wonderful full circle thing. And I, I, I'm uh, aside from the fact that his performance as as the Colonel Doctor is so so rich and so wonderful, I think just to have him there as a presence and to uh, to bring it forward uh, in that way is is there's a tremendous amount of resonance to that. So. Um, you know, congratulations to wh whoever, you know, who had the idea to cast him. Um, I, uh, I think that this is, it was really one of the best encores. Oh, and you must read, um, if you, if you do get to see it and I hope you do, uh, or, or, or have already, um, the, the very thorough essay in the, in the playbill by encores artistic director, Jack Vertel, which really, um, details the the very very 
torturous history of this musical from its premiere in the late 50s on the West Coast when it was called At the Grand and the setting had been changed apparently to Rome in the 50s. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, And then, you know, it never came in. It never uh, went further than that at the time, and then it, 30 years, 30 or 31 years later, it it began to be reworked as to the to the show that we know now. Apparently, with a tremendous amount of tourists involved, as Peter also alluded to, with the uh, bringing on of Maury Yeston and also Peter Stone uh, to be a, I guess, a show doctor uh, who never received credit. Um, and I'm not sure how much he actually rewrote or how, how what the extent of of his changes and fixes. Yeah, but, uh, Peter, Peter talked to me about that once, and um, and I asked him. He said, "Well, you know, everybody knows in the business that I did it, um, so why take credit? I mean, I, those who know will know, and those who don't know." don't need to know because they were, they're not even going to care. They're not going to know who wrote the book at all. Though I will say Luther Davis always denied to me that Peter Stone did a word. Oh, really? Petition. Yeah. So uh, he was very, um, very adamant about that. Well, actually, I had forgotten to this day, if you, if you do see Grand Hotel at Encores and you open up the, the program, it says book by Luther Davis, music and lyrics by Robert Wright and George Forrest. And then way below that, it says additional music and lyrics by Maury Yeston, even though by some accounts uh, between writing new stuff and rewriting old stuff, he, he did as much as 75 to 80 percent of it. So, uh, so, um, I, and apparently if you, if you dig a little bit, there are places where you can find who wrote what, uh, someone said that it, um, that it is in the booklet of the, of the cast album on the CD. I, I haven't had a chance to check that. Um, and I, and I'm told by Gerard Alessandrini that at one point, I guess when the show opened, that there were two sets of vocal selections released. Yes, there um, were. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One one of the songs by Wright and Forrest, and and the other the songs by Maury Eston. Uh, it it, it um, it's hard to think of another show that was in so much trouble, and went through uh, such a transformation that wound up being uh, a really a, a a fair size hit, and 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 one of the biggest uh, hits uh, that Broadway had had in a, in a long time. Well, the and, irony here, uh, <laughs> the real irony is that uh, when you say, uh, has there uh, ever been a show in so much trouble? Um, ironically, another Tommy Toon vehicle, and that's my one and only, which had I also had terrible trouble in Boston. I didn't see it there, but I'll tell you, I was at the opening night of my one and only, and it looked like a show that had never had an iota of trouble. So it's so interesting how both of these shows with Tommy Toon involved uh, rescued themselves uh, from, uh, uh, though, again, I will say I loved Grant Hotel when I started at the Colonial without Mari Eston's work. I loved it then because the characters were so interesting to me. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. Michael, I um, interrupted you, but I did want to get that in. Oh, no, that's OK. But but also with my one and only, uh, there had been the Peter Stone uh, right. uh, offering great help on that one, too, and which is apparently uh, why uh, – uh, he popped into Tommy Toon's head for Grand Hotel, and it's uh, I, boy, I, you know, I wish I had been able to see that that original version too because it must be Ooh. fascinating. And I, and I wonder what records exist of the original original, the one in the fifties when it was set in Rome. I, I wonder if there, uh, well, I don't know if there are any scripts surviving or, or bootlegs or anything like that because that would be 
that would be something uh, to see. But um, Grand Hotel, I would say, uh, I would say, my impression is that it has been a sleeper hit for encores because I don't, it, I just don't think that necessarily that much was expected from it. it, it it's it's not the starriest cast that they've had. Um, and uh, and Josh Rhodes was, uh, you know, uh, not as established as, as some of the other people who they've had as director and choreographers. Uh, again, uh, I can't stress what a wonderful job he did here. And I think that this is going to be a tremendous career boost for him. So um, you guys have rushed up against it, but I don't think exactly answered. Uh, do we think it's going to transfer? Is it transferable? Well, I think it's eminently transferable, uh, if only because, uh, not unlike Chicago, they have managed to make it look. Uh, well, no, I mean that's this. This looks much better even than than the encore Chicago. But it's very, it's a very simple, but beautiful set based on this uh, staircase, uh, central staircase with a red carpet and um, columns and chandeliers. Um, Without you ever for a moment feeling that the the set you know uh, is being stinted on, and of course the costumes help greatly. Uh, so I think that, and also I think the story has a, a tremendous um, resonance for today. Uh, you know, it, it, it's a time of story in many ways, but especially for our time. Here we see these people who are on; they don't know it, but they're on the precipice of not only the Great Depression, but also the rise of Nazism. And it's it's that kind of uh, end of the world, kind of a, you know, a party before the end of the world, end of an era uh, thing, uh, which um, a great deal of that is in Cabaret also, which is set in the same city uh, only a few years later, Berlin. So um, it, it's interesting to look at those two shows together and see how they um, they relate to each other. Uh, but it, to answer your question, I think it I think it is eminently transferable, and I would not be at all surprised, James. It's so much of a discussion today along the lines of some have, some have not. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, these days, so it might be timely for us to revive Grand Hotel. Well, then, since you mentioned that, I, I am going to say I wasn't going to initially, but I, I'm sure Peter is curious because right after the show was over, uh, the encore's performance, I ran over to him and asked him this. Um, what happens is in the, towards the beginning of the show, all of the characters are introduced, and among them are these kitchen workers, these scullery workers, um, uh, these big – four big muscular kind of uh, scary guys who come out and sing Some Have, Some Have Not to point up that theme of uh, you know e- economic disparity that – uh, you know that theoretically led to both the, the Great Depression and the rise of Nazism, um, and so they are, and that remains in this production. But in the original, at the end of the show, immediately after Kringlein and Flemschen go off, and there's that wonderful little ending for them. Um, what happened in the original was that the scullery workers come back and they sing some have, some have not in German to point out, you know what's about to happen. Now, that was cut. The reprise was cut from from this production, and I really missed it. Um, but for what it's worth, just to show you how people can look at things completely differently, I, I, I mentioned this to Gerard Alessandrini, uh, and 
and I told him I was kind of upset by the cut and I was really looking forward in, to it. And he said, oh, no, oh, no, no, no. That is a wonderful cut that, that never belonged in it to begin with. And I remember that we all snickered when those guys came out and sang that at the end. So <laughs> so I don't know. Um, you know, maybe it's overkill. Maybe maybe all of that that maybe that theme is evident in the show without it needing to be stated so so baldly uh what is your feeling on that peter um i don't have a feeling one way or the other but what i would like to mention is uh about jerry alessandrini who ironically enough was the first to record the melody of grand hotel because it took so long for grand hotel to get an album Oh. He, he, he did he did his parody Grim Hotel and put it on one of his Forbidden Broadway albums. So ironically enough, if you want to hear the melody from Grant Hotel in your home, you had to get his album because the original cast, uh, almost original cast, sorry to say, um, hadn't happened yet. That's amazing. Yeah. And by the way, that that the cast album when it was eventually released, uh, because David Carroll was deceased, uh, as an homage to him, they included a recording, a live recording of him uh, singing "Love Can't Happen" from a, a, a club act that he had done. So, um, so I think that was wonderful that they that they paid him that tribute and and. Uh, the, although the technical quality of that recording is not great, the, uh, you, it's still obviously a beautiful major voice, and it's so wonderful to have that memento of his performance. When I had heard the rumors that he was sick, I didn't quite believe that because um, the night before I had gone to see the show, and there was when he used to go into Grushkinskaya's apartment, he used to have to, uh, like on a horizontal ladder, he had to go from rung to rung to rung to rung, hanging um, in the as he as he went across to get into her room and i thought a man who was sick cannot possibly be doing this and what a credit to him that he was doing it because about two weeks later there was a party at the gershwin's um um, there was some album was being released on none such i forget which one it Mm. was but he was there and then i could see close up that yes indeed he was uh, quite ill so I was so impressed that he stayed with the show as long as he possibly could, even under the most arduous of circumstances. Yes, and and one final note I may have mentioned before. At the time, uh, Grand Hotel is uh, an RCA cast album, and at the time they were doing their albums in a studio on 44th Street. Uh, mm-hmm. between 6th and 7th and, and Avenue mm-hmm. and uh, uh, in a building that later became an IRS building. But at the time, it was uh, a, a recording studio. And uh, I lived across the street from that. Uh, oh. And, yeah, yeah. And so I, I remember, and I was living there at the time when he, when he died there. And, and so it was, it was a tremendously wow. sad story. It, it's uh, so sad how close he came to pre- preserving mm. his entire perform- performance on on record. Uh, but anyway, David yeah. Carroll st- started out as David James Carroll. I think he, he later dropped the James. But he is someone who, uh, as it was, had a, had a beautiful career and would have had an even far longer and, and more beautiful sure. one if he had not sure. been taken by it. By the way, in those days, CDs were uh, still being uh, sold in what were known as long boxes. Remember right. those? Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and uh, on the long box, on the back of the album, it actually said in bold type with an exclamation point, at last, because it took so long for the mm-hmm. album to get out. Um, I, I think that one of the 
most widely circulated YouTube videos is of We'll Take a Glass Together uh, at the uh, Thanksgiving Day Parade in front of Macy's. Uh, I, I see that surface every Thanksgiving uh, uh, quite the um, showcase for Grand Hotel to the rest of the world who, you know, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have big social media, and even even the internet was very young at the, this point when uh, Grand Hotel was out there, so it was even harder to see it because the cast recording wasn't out there, so it, it didn't really have that... Uh, that penetration into the into the market. Um, I, I I wonder if this Grand Hotel is is it's got such incredible good buzz and positive uh, feedback right now. If we're going to see it in some other incarnation, one other thing I didn't get a chance to see it this weekend. Um, I was tied up all weekend. My daughter had her school production of Little Mermaid. Oh, and so oh, nice. uh, we did that. Good? Well, how, how how nice? Yes, uh, <laughs> um, it was it was it was uh, good to see my daughter on stage. Uh, mm-hmm. She she's wonderful. Um, good. I, I miss Grand Hotel, but I heard that Love Can't Happen was cut. Uh, was uh, did I misread that? Did I hear incorrectly? You miss? Or? Yeah, yeah. No, that's not true. That's not true. So I, no. I couldn't imagine why. <laughs> or maybe is there a reprise? The the roses at the station was that cut or no? Uh, roses that was there too. Yeah. 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 So I I couldn't imagine how they could do that. But there were other cuts that were made there uh, that Michael had mentioned before. The some have some have not reprise in German. Were there other cuts that uh, that you had noticed? I noticed little things. There's, there was a marvelous thing in the original where um, the Baron uh, has given Eric, uh, the um, concierge, his uh, cigarette case, a silver cigarette case. It's the last vestige of his wealth, mm. and he gives it to him. And in the original, he had to give it to somebody he owed money to. I think it was the chauffeur or something like that. But um, I really missed that moment. I also – there was there's a character who um, – had the inelegant name of Madame P.P. Um, and again, uh, <laughs> not the greatest of uh, names, but she was um, a, a worker, um, a maid type of worker. And um, and she wound up um, doing something that involved maybe blackmail or something, but she wound up wearing a mink coat. Um, you know, the, the Thing, nice things happen to her as well, um, but but always through you know uh, un- unpleasant machinations. Um, you know, for all the Grand Hotel is really an ironic title because what goes on in there is not so grand. And uh, but the texture of this show. Notice how much we're talking about it. I yes. mean, really, you know, there's so much to discuss. And by the way, in terms of we'll take a glass together, that was the opening number of the Tonys that year. And Grand Hotel lost the Tony to City of Angels. And, um, but the Tonys wanted to put the best foot forward. And while my admiration for City of Angels is immense, immense, I love the show. And uh, yeah, it, the production number they chose to open that show to really get those viewers enticed was the one from Grand Hotel. And it looked fabulous on the show because um, the structure of the set was really um, inspired by what was going on in that Hotel Diplomat. Uh, the room was um, essentially in three sections, and Tommy Toon took it from yeah. there. 
uh, he made it in three sections. And because We'll Take a Glass Together was mostly in the center section, it came out beautifully on TV because it was contained and just right for a TV screen. So it, that's why it's one of the reasons that um, it's one of the best of all Tony numbers that we've ever seen because it lent itself so beautifully to a small screen. And I think we have I think we have gotten this far without mentioning the name of Michael Jeter, who was the original Kringle line. So don't just we do not want to uh, forget him. He is also no longer with us. So please uh, go to YouTube, uh, ch- check it out for David Carroll and Michael Jeter. And we'll take a glass together. There are at least two performances. There's the um, well, well, the, the two that we've mentioned, I guess, the Macy's Parade and the Tonys. Uh, so and, and, and oh, if you can find his. Tony acceptance speech listen to that as well oh yes he talks about the fact that he was a drug addict and beat it and if I can do it you can do it and uh, it was very very moving so uh, we're still talking about it I'm telling you this is a great show let me leave you with this thought Uh, Matt Tamanini on today on Broadway uh, has made some really really outrageous predictions that have come to fruition in the last year or so (laughs) and uh and we were talking about Grand Hotel, and he said that it may not be a good commercial, uh, a feasible commercial production, but maybe one of the major nonprofits, Lincoln Center, Roundabout, yeah. Uh, yeah. Manhattan Theater Club, can pick this up. Very so, smart. So uh, leave, leave you with that. As Jeff Sweet says, from your lips to God's hearing aid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Michael, you got to see admissions that uh, we talked about earlier uh, last week or the week before. So give us your thoughts on admissions. Yes, Peter gave us a, a glowing report, and I just uh, felt compelled to to chime in because I saw the, the play since then. And it really is a wonderful, wonderful play by Joshua Harmon, who uh, our listeners may know from Bad Jews and significant other uh, this this is at the new house at Lincoln Center and uh, the entire production is really excellent is the, the entire cast as directed by Daniel Auken uh, we have Jessica Hecht Anne McDonough Sally Murphy Andrew Garman uh, but I absolutely wanted to concur wholeheartedly with Peter's assessment of the performance of Ben Edelman uh, in the role of Charlie. Uh, the, the situation here basically is Jessica Hecht plays the admissions director at a private school and who has prided herself on making the uh, student population very diverse, whereas uh, uh, it, prior to her arrival, it had not been. And uh, and there's much discussion of this. And, and, you know, of course, her whole family is on board with it, including Charlie, played by Ben Edelman. But then what happens is that uh, Charlie gets waitlisted uh, or deferred uh, admission to an Ivy League school, whereas his best friend, who is mixed race, gets in right away. And so then everything kind of shifts and there's lots of discussion uh, about that, Uh, you know, whether, you know, uh, I've always thought that affirmative action, if that's the word for it, is a 
understandably necessary but still flawed solution to uh, uh, an epic, epic problem. And I guess that's the basis of a lot of the discussion that happens here. But um, it it takes uh, the form spectacularly uh, in admissions of this epic rant of a monologue that Charlie gives. And it's superbly delivered by Ben Edelman. Um, it occurs to me that that there was a, a somewhat somewhat similar um, uh, tour de force in significant other. Uh, and and so I think that that this is something that the that the playwright uh, Joshua Harmon is is really really good at. Uh, Gideon Glick delivered the the monologue in that play, but this one I think is probably two or three times as long and incredibly intense uh, as a, as a feat of memorization alone. It's just incredible. And then the emotion and the frustration and the, the confusion that is brought to it by Ben Edelman. Uh, it's, it's something that, that has to be seen if there's any way you can get to it. And he, um, as it turns out, I, I looked him up. He was an understudy for uh, uh, the role of Jordan, the getting click role in Significant Other. Uh, and that is his only significant uh, Broadway credit prior to this. So I think that this uh, was really his chance to step out into the spotlight and he seized it in, in the most magnificent way. And I think that we will be hearing a lot from him in the future. And it's it's just one of the most amazing monologues I, I've ever seen in my life. All right. So that's admissions over at Lincoln Center Theater. It's playing through April 29th. Peter, you got over to the theater at St. Clement's to see a production of Babette's Feast. So tell us about this. Well, uh, Babette's Feast is to me a most interesting property. I uh, like the movie very much, and it essentially is uh, an anti-religious film because it deals with all these sanctimonious people who really aren't very nice. And there's somebody um, who works for them, Babette, who is going to make a meal, and um, she's very, very nice, and she does an act of great sacrifice because she's a good person. So the moral of the story is uh, the people who really proclaim to be um, wonderfully religious aren't necessarily good people, while the people who have not much interest in religions may very well be good people. So so that's terrific. Uh, so it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful movie. It is not, I think, um, a particularly effective stage piece because of the way it is done. It um, has nine people in the cast, and it's done in a story theater type of way, meaning that uh, people describe the action, uh, voices come in, voices come out, um, everybody plays a, a million roles, that type of thing. Everybody on stage at St. Clement's knows what he and she is doing. We don't. I think if you don't know the movie, you won't have the slightest idea of what's going on. It's wonderful to look at because they're so accomplished uh, they're all dressed in black uh, for most of the show and um, so it's hard to keep them all straight and what is going on I truly believe if I hadn't seen the movie I would have been totally lost so if you know the movie of the best feast you might find this a very interesting variation on a theme that said though if you don't know the picture either stay away or watch the movie 
All right. So that's uh, Babette Cease at the Theater at St. Clement's on 46th Street. I've included a link to the Portland Stage Company's production of Babette's Feet because they've got some background information and some videos on it. Interestingly enough, I I could not find any information or website for the off-Broadway production of Babette's Feast, but the Portland Stage Company's got a lot of stuff, and this uh, production seems to have come directly from the Portland Stage Company, so it seems to be a direct correlation to the information there. Peter, um, you and I had the pleasure of seeing Escape to Margaritaville. Uh, So... (laughs) Michael talked about it last week. Uh, What was your take on Escape to Margaritaville? You know, um, Wish You Were Here, a musical from 1952, opened to really bad reviews, and uh, they decided to work on it. Hello, Dolly, in 1964, opened to extraordinarily good reviews, and later, um, Dawa Champion decided to work on it, even though he had a smash hit. He didn't need to work on it, he just wanted to make it better. So, Josh Logan with Wish You Were Here, Gawa Champion, these are, are major people, and uh, so is Christopher Ashley. He's a major director. We're very, very uh, fond of him. We're amazed at what he did with um, Come From Away. So, um, I hope he goes back to work on it. I guess chances are very dim. I mean, here I am giving two examples. I'm making it sound as if this happens all the time. It certainly doesn't. But the thing is that um, what we have here is pretty much of a mess and um, a very (sighs) – yeah, I I don't know how people can watch shows day after day after day after day. I'm talking about the staff now and not notice things that seem to – to be so obvious. Now, one of the things is, here's a woman named Tammy who's getting married in a week. And she and her best friend, Rachel, take a trip to this Margaritaville uh, place. Now, do you really believe that any woman who's getting married in six days is going to take a trip? Uh, Aren't there all these last-minute details? Doesn't she want to be around? Uh, All that kind of stuff, you know, even if she just wants to see what presents are coming in. But I don't think um, an impending bride is going to do that six days before her wedding. I think she's going to wait until after the wedding to go away for six days on what has been known as a honeymoon. That's when you go away. You don't go away beforehand. I mean, that, uh, that makes no sense to me whatsoever. Now, the other issue is that Tammy's a heavy set woman. And her husband is very, very critical of that. Her husband to be a fiancé, I should say. Very critical of that. Very critical. Not that he's any prize to look at himself. You know, he's um, he's not so thin either. But, you know, that's a very real situation. I've seen it happen a million times. Men are critical of their women uh, being too heavy. And then the women say, well, what about you? Never mind about me. You know, and, well, he's one of those. I mean, he's really portrayed as a bore. Um, he's on a couch with uh, two of his friends. All of them are wearing sports um, um T-shirts and uh, sweatshirts that deal with uh, sports. Um, they drink beer, et cetera, et cetera. It's that type of thing. And one of the reasons Rachel wants to go away with her friend is indeed to uh, hope to convince her not to marry this guy, which is a very good goal. Um, but if you're trying to lose weight, 
do you go to a place like Margaritaville where there are drinks galore and there's food? A, a place like that is too much of a temptation, too much of a temptation. Take her away to a fat farm. I mean, you know, I, that makes more sense. You know, so that could happen. Um, of course, <laughs> we, we don't get any Jimmy Buffett songs at a, um, a fat farm, but um, but, you know, that's a real problem. Well, anyway, Rachel goes to uh, Rachel is a I'm on her side, you know, Everybody um, in the, in Margaritaville is, if not an alcoholic, uh, certainly has the potential to be one. Rachel is, on the other hand, a workaholic. Now, this would be a bad thing if indeed she were the type of woman who wanted to get ahead because she wanted money, prestige, and power. That's not who Rachel is. She's very concerned about the environment. She loves her job. That's the key part of it. She loves her job. Now, she goes to Margaritaville and she meets this stud who tries to convince her, no, you know, let your hair down, learn to enjoy life, all this kind of stuff. She is enjoying life. Those of us who love our jobs don't need to escape from them. Uh, I don't. (laughs) When I go on vacation, what do I do? I see plays and I write about them. I mean, because this is what I love. So she's like that. She is very much into saving the environment. And we're supposed to believe that his way is better. Okay, but of course, he's a stud. And of course, they fall in love. And um, it doesn't work out, which is really nice, except it does work out. Because three years later, they find each other and um, they uh, decide to get married. Now, Would you marry someone who you haven't known for 1,095 of the last 1,102 days that you literally spent a week with them and that was it? I mean, you know, it's just not a good idea. Um, By the way, um, as it turns out, uh, Tammy meets a guy named Brick who um, is a bartender in Margaritaville and he likes the, uh, the way she looks. And that's great. That's a very good idea. You know, the fact that it doesn't matter to him that, uh, you know, we all have our types and a heavyset woman is his type. Great. Wonderful to see. Wonderful. And she doesn't wind up marrying um, the the boar from back home. Um, However, um, he winds up moving to Cincinnati where she's from, which is a bit of an irony because Lisa Howard plays the part and she spent a lot of time in Cincinnati uh, at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music where I saw her be sensational as the older Belle in Little Me and better still, Fosca in Passion. She was magnificent. But anyway, um, he goes to Cincinnati. Now he's a postman. Hmm, you know, I smell trouble. Um, How long is it going to be before he goes postal in one way or another? I don't necessarily mean he'll kill people, but what I do mean is I imagine a bartender in Margaritaville is happier than a postman in Cincinnati. Uh, I could be wrong. You know, but that's uh, that's my take on that. So um, I, I wonder if he could have just been a bartender in Cincinnati and, and because bartenders, uh, the ones I've known, have, have enjoyed the fact that, that they do what they do. They bring some people a lot of pleasure. They, of course, have to shut some people off. But um, and more to the point, um, it's it's a very social thing. You know, the mailman doesn't have that same type of affinity with people. So if you're a gregarious type who's a bartender, you're going to miss that. So I think that's a problem, too. By the way, um, Tammy gets a a letter in the mail saying that Rachel is marrying um, Tully, the uh, stud. They're best friends, and she gets a letter in the mail um, saying that's happening. Uh, To be fair, um, she also – Rachel sends uh, airline tickets so she can come. But wait a minute. If she's her best friend, 
why isn't she her maid of honor? Or why isn't she at least a bridesmaid? When we see the wedding, and, and none of this happens. You know, there is no maid of honor. There is no best man. Now, the other uh, thing is that um, Tully is one of these uh, musicians, uh, a casual musician, and uh, he claims he doesn't really want to be successful. Playing is its own reward, and that's good enough, and uh, and he doesn't think it could happen anyway. And there's some very good dialogue when Rachel points out to him that he just doesn't have the ambition. Well, what happens is he winds up being discovered, um, and uh, he plays at a club, and, so, and suddenly he's this big superstar. And this is a problem, too, because three years later, when he finds Rachel again, uh, well, what's what's happened to him in three years? If he's become this, if not a superstar, certainly a star, hasn't he has had groupies? Has he been celibate for three years? I don't think so. Um, has she really been from a week together? Has she really been on his her mind his mind that much? And by the way, you can't judge a relationship on a vacation because everybody's having a good time. It has nothing to do with real life. What's going to happen when she's pursuing a career and what's happening when he's pursuing his uh where are they living how are they you know none of this occurred to anybody while the show was being written and i do think that's a titanic problem um in in believability and that's where it's all um so so frustrating uh you know the other thing too is there are times when there are real spots where songs can truly uh, occur. For example, at one point when Tully, the stud, um, is asked about how he feels about Rachel, because he's he's gone through women like we used to go through TV guides, you know, one a week, and that's established at the beginning of the show that he loves them and leaves them, and um, so now Brick, the um, bartender, says to him, "Hey, um, you know, are you getting involved with this girl?" And he says, "No, I don't like her." I think I love her. Well, that sounds like a song cue to me, you know, yeah. and and why is there a song there? Because Jimmy Buffett never wrote a song about that subject. You know, uh, he wrote a song about cheeseburgers. So that's in the show. You know, we're extolling cheeseburgers. I remember when musical theater writers used to write the night they invented champagne. Now we're extolling cheeseburgers. Well, anyway, you know, so um uh, I, I'll admit that I went uh, the day of the snowstorm in the afternoon, but the way the house was configured, it really seemed to me that uh, only about half the orchestra had been sold. You can say, well, it was a snow day and people didn't show up. Really? You mean like from row L to row Z, nobody showed up? Um, you know, But everybody uh, from A to um, K uh, showed up? You know, so I really don't think that um, it, it's selling all that well, and I don't know if it's going to be with us very long. I blame none of the performers who are all doing their job and doing them very, very well. Um, so, uh, you know, uh, good luck to them, and uh, I, I hope that they uh, wind up in better musicals as times go on. But um, but this one really um, defies any type of logical examination. And, you know, I guess people connected with the show would say you've missed the point the whole point is it's supposed to be a good time it's supposed to be an escape because that's what indeed we're talking about here escape to margaritaville come i i just can't turn off my brain like that i just can't do it so um i imagine a lot of people can and uh as i always say i'd rather people have a good time than agree with me but um i sat there open mouthed and stunned that uh, so many lapses in logic uh, occurred in one musical. Uh, it's interesting because um, what you talk about, about being a natural music cue, 
Um, it's not as though that Jimmy Buffett is not with us anymore. Yeah. Uh, and somebody could have gone to Jimmy Buffett and said, hey, Jimmy, can you write us a song for this? This is a man who's written hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of songs. It's not like he's tapped out. Uh, yeah, but what's so interesting is I guess he follows his own advice, you know, yeah. <laughs> live free and easy. You know, I don't want to work. You know, I've worked. <laughs> no, I don't mm. want to work. You know, I'm, here are the songs. Put them in a show. That's it. That's it. Good enough. I don't have to write anything new. I've already written. I'm relaxing. <laughs> I'm escaping to Margaritaville. Oh, my God. <laughs> I called it uh, – uh, when somebody asked me to summarize it on Facebook, I, I said it was America's response to Mamma Mia. Um, well, you know, remember last week Michael said, you know, it's uh, less stupid than Mamma Mia. I don't think it is. Um, <laughs> I don't. Know. There's I a pull what, quote for you. Less yeah, stupid I, than I, Mamma Mia on the front of the Marquee Theater. <laughs> right. Uh, but um, I, I truly believe that it's more stupid than Mamma Mia. And while Mamma Mia missed a lot of opportunities because there's something very emotional about a young woman who wants to find out who her father is. And in fact, it was done better. Uh, the same story was done in. Um, a, a musical in the late 70s called Carmelina by Alan J. Lerner and Burton Lane, which has a very nice score, a very traditional Broadway score, and in fact got creamed um, at that time when the British invasion was happening. And um, I remember the Village Voice, uh, I guess it was Michael Feingold, saying Carmelina is the best new musical of 1954, except it was 25 years later. You know, So it, it looked old-fashioned. But the source material, the essential source material, they didn't acknowledge it. Um, Alan J. Lerner did acknowledge it in an interview, but it was never given credit on the uh, window card, was a wonderful movie called Buona Sera, Mrs. Campbell, uh, which dealt with uh, three men who really believed uh, they were supporting their daughter in Italy um, uh, because the, the mother had written them and said, this is your daughter. Um, it's actually based on a real incident, but it's a tender movie, and you wouldn't believe how tender Telly Savalas is in it. So anyway, there's a lot of emotion there. Mamma Mia missed the emotion, but I'm telling you, if, if, if it really stuck to the template of Buenos Aires, Mrs. Campbell, it would have been sensational. That said, that said, I still believe it's superior to Escape to Margaritaville. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to tap into your uh, encyclopedic knowledge of Broadway. It seems that this uh, season we've had two uh, musicals whose uh, plot line uh, cornered on a volcano eruption. Have we had any other? <laughs> have we had any others? Is this going to be a future Broadway Radio trivia question? Boy, that's a very good point. It hadn't occurred to me that SpongeBob uses the same device. You know, I guess because I found SpongeBob so forgettable, I've already forgotten about it. So uh, <laughs> that could very well be the reason why. But, but um, I, 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 I. And boy, I'm, I'm sure I'm going to get a lot of uh, mail on this saying, are you crazy? How could you forget X, you know, a certain show that um, had volcano <laughs> eruption? But offhand, I can't think of one. You know, so, yeah, I couldn't uh, think of one either. But, yeah, uh, but certainly. it's entirely possible that um, that device has been used. But what a good point. Twice in one season. Wow. <laughs> Maybe some sort of off-Broadway thing, you know, thinking, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, there's one. Yes, off-Broadway. <laughs> you can tell just from the title. It was called Kiss Me Quick. Before the lava reaches the village. <laughs> no way. Do you, have, do you remember any details of that? How long ago was that? Uh, about 20 years ago. Ironically uh -huh. enough, my, 
my girlfriend once wrote an article about what it was like to be um, uh, involved with a, a show freak, and uh, she used that as an example. You know, when he tells you, uh, "Saturday night we're going to kiss me quick before the lava reaches the village," that was her. Uh, metaphor for uh, the type of thing that um, she's invited to and uh, or that I will wind up talking about. So at least that one, you know, uh, uh, it's so funny that um, I wouldn't have thought of it had you not said the words off Broadway. So thank you for uh, stoking my mouth. <laughs> there is also uh, 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 a Tom Hanks, I want to say Tom Hanks and – Oh, I can't remember. Joe versus the volcano. I, I can't. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Meg Ryan, Ryan. Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. Um, you know, perhaps people are looking to musicalize this for next season now that volcanoes are hot on Broadway. Third so. jewel of the triple crown. Really. Yeah, right. Third jewel. Uh, did you see that Jesse Green article in the in the Times uh, about his uh, – he wrote not. He wrote a response about? piece. Um, his, his Margaritaville review – was taken to task as being mean, uh, and he wrote a piece in the Times about uh, his Margaritaville review, and that, uh, and that basically came down to he felt it's his responsibility to be authentic in his visceral reaction to bad things that are on stage. Uh, mm-hmm. So, <laughs> very interesting. With that, I hate to transition into this, but you also got a chance to see Rocktopia. Oh, uh, you want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So you know. Uh, okay. Go all ahead. right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I realized that uh, rock acts are very clever uh, by coming out and saying "How you doing?" Um, whatever town it is. I mean, because that's how this one starts. How you doing, New York City? Well, we're doing fine, in fact. But you know, it's a very smart idea to start a show that way. How you doing, Natrona? You say to the people in Wyoming, because it makes it seem like you really care about the city and that it's a great place to be. So you bond immediately. So I think that's really a very clever thing to do. Um, so that that's the extent of my admiration for Rocktopia, though, um, because, of course, it's not long before this guy says, come on, put your hands together. Let's do this, that type of thing. You know, I, 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 I there was a marvelous song um, by Dennis Markell and Doug Bernstein, um, which uh, one of the lyrics is, don't you hate it when they make you clap your hands? And um, so that happens here. But, you know. Uh, watching, which is a rock show. I mean, they have on the marquee names like Mozart, Mozart and Stravinsky. But what happens is they um, start off by doing a few bars, or maybe a few more than that, to be fair, um, of a classical um, piece. And then what you have is uh, a rock artist coming in and singing a song, which may be thematically related. I don't know. I, I couldn't find any theme related, but um, or maybe it's musically related, but I couldn't uh, find anything. But you know what I noticed? You know, rock performers, um, so many of them bend over when they're singing and um so they sort of look like upside down l's you know and they they close their eyes tight and they wince and when they sing it looks like they're having trouble 
um, getting out of bowel movement. I mean, that's what they look like to me, um, that they're really struggling to, to get it out. So, um, and guitarists, I know, you know, one of the things that we hear about in theater, it's always wonderful when people make it look easy. Well, do you ever notice that rock guitarists always make it look hard? They scrunch up their faces if this is the hardest work in the world. Now, maybe it's because they're having trouble remembering the chords they're going to play next. I don't know. It could very well be that. Or do they really find it so hard to play the guitar? I mean, I remember in high school, I played the guitar and I didn't find it that hard, but um, they, they make it look like it's such hard work. So, and um, so uh, Rocktopia is filled with power ballads. And um, I think that uh, many of them are power failures, but um, anyway, so Rocktopia was not for me. I'm sorry to say. And, um, uh, it's really not uh, for anybody who uh, cares about um, Broadway musicals as such. Um, they call it a classical revolution. That's uh, the subtitle there. But um, it may very well be, but um, yeah, the less said, the better. I'm done. All right. <laughs> Okay, so before we wrap up for today, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayvideo.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to iTunes for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts or iTunes. You can listen to us in many ways. One of the ways is iHeartRadio plays us. TuneIn plays us. Apple Podcasts, uh, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can find finer podcasts, you will find Broadway Radio's lineup. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found at broadwayradio.com, as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, uh, Major Attaway's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, links to uh, Babette's Feast and Portland Stage Company. All these other things can be found at Broadway Radio in the show notes as well. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia question? Well, the question was, what song from a notorious musical flop of 1958 had a song whose title could describe the Golden Theater right now? Now, Michael Shane guessed femininity from O Captain because three tall women uh, is now with the Golden. Um, well, you know, uh, that wasn't a notorious flop. It ran 190-odd performances. Um, Carrie Winslow was more in tune with me because Whoop Up, which was a notorious flop, um, had Glenda's Place. That was the name of a song in it, which the Golden now is, thanks to Glenda's Jackson's return to us after much too long an absence. Michael Wannis, um, Doug Strassler also got it, and uh, so did Robert Lobiondo, who was also a tiny bit late to the discussion of Broadway board games that we had last week. Uh, uh, Robert wants a Follies board game. You go around the board um, trying to meet Phyllis, Ben, Sally, and Buddy, along with Carlotta Stella. <laughs> And Didi, so the mirror number can be performed. Once that happens, and the four are brought into one space, the board flips over and takes us to Loveland. You have to walk on through without getting distracted by the follow no, follies numbers, and um, you have to exit the theater before the wrecking ball falls. So, um, I um, yeah, I'd buy that game. That sounds good to me. All right, this week's trivia question. In terms of musicals, what do Broadway, Cape Cod, Grand Street, Greenwich Village, London and Provincetown all have in common, and the answer has nothing to do with anything gay. Not per se, not, not as such. Anyway, so that's our question for next week. All right. If you know that answer, you know, email us at triviabroadwayradio.com. We'll let you know if you're on the uh, right track. So, on behalf of Michael Portantier and Peter Felicia, this is James Marino saying thanks so much for listening to Broadway Radios this week on Broadway. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.